0: Amen. All right. As the uh, buckets come by, you can um, put your stuff in there. Listen, if we've not met before, my name is Benger. I'm one of the pastors here at Flourishing Grace, and um, really glad to be here this morning. If you've been tracking along with us, uh, we are in the middle of a series where we're walking through kind of the first half of the book of Acts, and um, you can uh, turn there right now. We're gonna be in Acts chapter four. Just to kind of put your finger there. We'll, we'll get there in a couple of minutes, but just pull out your Bible and be ready for that. If you don't have a Bible, uh, maybe you forgot. Got one. Um, there's one underneath your seat, and the, uh, there's a blue Bible under there. We're going to be on page 1009, Acts chapter 4, in that Bible. And if you don't have one at home, um, that's your Bible. We'd love for you to put your name in that Bible, um, take it home, read it. That's what it's there for. We want those to walk out the door, so please feel free. To do that. Um, But before I dive in, let me just tell you a quick story about a journalist in Chicago in the 1970s. Um, There was a journalist in Chicago in the 1970s by the name of Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel was a very good journalist. He was a legal editor for the Chicago Tribune and an award winning journalist. He was also an atheist. Now, at a certain point in time, his wife, Leslie, they had a couple of kids um, when they moved, and they moved into a new condo complex, and neither of them were really interested in God or church or anything like that. And Leslie, his wife, befriended another mom in the complex, and, and this mom uh, began talking to Leslie about Jesus and about her relationship with Jesus. And over the course of time in their relationship, Leslie actually um, came to put her hope and in in her trust in Christ, and she became a follower of Jesus, As you can imagine, this just kind of messed with with Lee and and Leslie's marriage just a little bit. In fact, Leslie, looking back on that time, says that Lee was hostile. It wasn't just, man, go do your thing, but he he was angry about this. And so he decided to put his journalism background to good use. He thought, man, if I can just uh, kind of poke holes in this whole Christianity thing, if I can debunk the whole thing, if I can use my investigative skills as a legal editor for the Chicago Tribune, if I can do all of this, then, then she'll see that this isn't true and, and she won't you know, want to be a follower of Jesus anymore and, and we can have her weekends back. That was kind of his plan. So he goes to work and very quickly he realizes that the whole thing centers around Jesus. Which, of course, when you back up, you're like, well, of course it's about Jesus. That's the church answer. But many times when we talk about faith, we kind of talk about this general faith. But he realized, man, if you really take the Bible seriously, uh, all the Old Testament points towards Jesus. All of it is about Jesus. And, and he realized, if I can poke holes in that... If I can show that the Bible, uh, that Jesus of the Bible is not who Jesus really was, if I can show he really wasn't divine, that he didn't do the things that the Bible says he did, that he didn't really die and then rise again from the dead three days later, the whole thing falls apart. It all centers around Jesus. And over time, as he begins to investigate, he actually the opposite of his goal actually happens. He begins to become convinced that Jesus of the Bible is who Jesus really was. That Jesus really did die for our sins on the cross and rise again three days later. And in 1981, he gave his life to Christ and became a follower of Jesus. Now, a number of years later, he wrote a book called The Case for Christ, where he kind of walks through many of these arguments and and, uh, evidence that, that Jesus of the Bible is who Jesus really was. And it was really instrumental in my own life. Many of you know, I've told this story, but I didn't grow up in this thing called church. Um, I wasn't really interested in it at all until I had a friend in high school begin to tell me about Jesus. And so um, I began to go on my own journey. I'm not the kind of person that, that, you know, kind of proud. So I'm not going to go up to somebody and say, hey, would you teach me about this? I was investigating for myself, and this was one of the books that I came across. Because I am and was and still am naturally a skeptic. Like I'm the kind of guy where if Jennifer, my wife, um, you know, says there's a, there's a light bulb out in our living room. We've got kind of a high uh, ceiling in our living room. She says, would you grab the ladder and, and change the light bulb? I'm the kind of guy where instead of first going and getting the ladder and a new light bulb, I'm going to walk over to the wall and flip the switch a couple times and make sure it's really out. Anybody else like that? Yeah. You can pray for my marriage. She's better than I deserve. It's been 11 years. But that's, that's kind of me. I'm a skeptic. I need to see... For myself, many of you in this room are the same way, and I learned the same thing that, that Lee learned so many decades ago that it all centers around Jesus, and I became convinced that, that the Jesus is the Bible is who Jesus really was. They really did die for my sin. They really did rise again from the dead three days later, and he's deserving of my undivided attention, my, my worship, and my praise. Now, what we're going to be talking about today in Acts chapter 4 is actually very much along the lines of that theme. Now, if you're really sharp, and I know you are, you just look like really intelligent people, you'll be thinking, Man, last week, Pastor Josh walked through the end of Acts chapter 2, and we're jumping ahead to Acts chapter 4. Like Where's chapter 3? Well, chapter 3 and chapter 4 actually are really connected together. So we're going to walk through the beginning of chapter 4. But let me just give a quick recap of, of Acts chapter 3, what happens. At the beginning of Acts chapter 3, we find Peter and John doing what, what the followers of Jesus in, in chapter 2 did. Gathering at the temple for, for worship of Jesus, for prayer. And as they're going to the temple, um, they meet a guy who has been lame since birth. Since he, he can't walk. In fact, he is well known to the people of Jerusalem because his friends carry him to the temple day after day so that he can ask for alms, that he can ask for for people to help him out, give him a little bit of money. And so Peter and John approach him, and then Peter looks at him, and he thinks, okay, I'm going to get something from this guy. But, But Peter says, listen, I've got no silver, I've got no gold, but what I have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus, Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And the guy gets up. His ankles, his legs become strong, and he can walk. He has been lame since birth, we find out later, for over 40 years. And he just starts raising a ruckus and, and, and praising God. And this, of course, starts to draw a crowd. And, and people, not just because he's raising a ruckus, but they recognize him. So this guy, isn't he the same guy that's been carried here every single day for, for the past number of years? And he's walking, and, and eventually people put two and two together. And, and they realize, man, Peter and John had something to do with this. And so Peter sees the crowd and, and he says, listen, you think we did this? No, this wasn't us that did this. It was God who raised Jesus from the dead, that did this. And he begins to walk through uh, what we would call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, starting with Abraham, about how the Old Testament, all of the Old Testament, actually points towards Jesus, and how Jesus is our rescuer, and how God raised him from the dead after Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And as they are listening to this, um, some leaders actually approach Peter, um, leaders of the temple, some religious leaders, approach Peter and John and see what's going on. And that's where we're going to start off today in Acts chapter 4. So if you do me a favor, as we read, would you please stand, if you're able, and uh, out of reverence for the word of God, as we read chapter 4, 1 through 22. And as they were speaking, Peter and John, to the people, The priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word of God believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes, gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you, And to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. So here's the scene. These religious leaders, these, these leaders of the temple, approach Peter and John, and they're really annoyed. And, and they're not just annoyed because this crowd is gathered and distracted probably from the worship that's going on, and because they're talking about Jesus. They're also annoyed because they're saying that through Jesus, resurrection is possible, that we can, we can live together, we can be forgiven because of the power of God through Jesus. We can be resurrected as well and live forever worshiping Jesus. See, there was a kind of a theological disagreement among some Jewish people. The, the branch of Judaism, um, of, of the people who were in charge of the temple were the Sadducees, and they didn't believe that there was any resurrection. They believed that we were here and we're supposed to honor God, but when we die, we die. There's no way you could possibly die and go to heaven, which is why they were called Sadducees, because that made them very sad, you see. Yeah? Come on there. You can use that later. I know you will. And so they decide to interrogate them, but because it's late in the day, they decide, okay, we're going to put you in jail. Maybe some of the other companions of, of Peter and John were put in jail as well. It seems like the man who was healed was put in jail as well. And the next morning, they convene kind of a, an interrogation-type type, um, type conversation. And they approach Peter and John, and they say, by what power, by what name have you done this? You see, the facts on the ground were, were not able to be disputed. This guy, whom they knew, this wasn't just some random guy, like, man, was this a show? Was this a hoax? They knew this guy that was healed. He had been brought to the temple day after day, month after month, year after year. And they, they knew that something had happened. There's, there's no denying it. And so the question was, well, by what power, by what name did you do this? And their hope was that recognizing they'd been with Jesus, their hope was that, that they would say something blasphemous, like, oh, by Jesus, the Son of God, so that they could punish them. And Peter's response to them, Luke goes out of his way to point out that that Peter's response, he was filled with the Holy Spirit, that it was God's power within that was that was helping him answer this. Peter sees through their hypocrisy, and the first thing he says helps unveil that hypocrisy of these leaders. Chapter 4 and verse 8, Peter says this. He says, rulers of the people and elders. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Peter says, listen, God has done something. There's no denying that. So are we on on trial? Are we on trial for this good thing that God has done? And he begins to unveil some of the motives behind these religious leaders who should have been the first ones to point people to what God is doing in their midst. And what Peter says next could not be more insulting to these leaders. You see, oftentimes we kind of miss this in verse 11. We want to skip over verse 11, get through it, because chapter 4, verse 12 in Acts is is actually one of the more well-known verses in all of Acts, if not the whole New Testament. But verse 12 doesn't make any sense without verse 11. Peter says this, and again, it could not be more insulting to these leaders. He says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Now, why was this insulting to these religious leaders? Well, the first time we hear this idea of this cornerstone is back in the Old Testament, in in the book of Psalms, one of the Psalms 118, verse 22. And Psalm 118, verse 22 says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And the meaning um, of of this particular verse in this particular psalm was that the nation of Israel, though it was insignificant, though it had been disregarded by the nations around them, though it had started so small, and, and though it had been oppressed and gone through some ups and downs, this insignificant, or at least seemingly insignificant nation of Israel that was disregarded and oppressed by the nations around them actually was chosen by God to be God's light to the nations. And this was a source of comfort to the Israelites. Now, fast forward hundreds of years, and Jesus is on earth doing his ministry. The week before he's going to be crucified, on put on trial in a sham trial and crucified, he's in the temple in Jerusalem. And it's the, the week of Passover, and, and all these people are coming in from all over different regions to worship in the temple for Passover. And Jesus actually goes into the temple and he sees money changers there. He sees people who are selling uh, uh, animals for sacrifice and and they're doing it for for a great cost because they're taking advantage of the fact that these people have to come to Jerusalem. They have to come to the temple in order to worship God. So, So they're there not to help them worship God. They're there to make a buck. And Jesus sees this and he drives them out. And then he starts healing people. People come to Jesus and he begins healing them and this draws a crowd. And these very same leaders, who later on would approach Peter and John as we saw today, approach Jesus and ask him almost the exact same question. By what authority are you doing these things? And as Jesus often does, Jesus responds by telling some stories. And one of the stories, one of the parables he tells was about a landowner who owned a certain vineyard. And he leases this vineyard out to some tenants. And the idea is that these tenants would tend to the vineyard and that there would be a harvest. And, and as part of their pay for, for being able to lease out this, this vineyard, they would pay the landowner a share of the crops. So uh, the harvest time comes and the landowner sends three servants to the tenants in order to collect his share of the crops, his payment. They see the servants and they beat up one. They kill another and they stone another. And the landowner's like, what is going on? So he sends his very own son uh, to collect this payment because surely they will respect the son. And they see the son and they think, man, this is our chance to actually get the son's inheritance. We're going to get this vineyard. And so they kill the son. And Jesus says, man, what do you think is going to happen to these tenants? They're going to die a miserable death. That's what's going to happen because they killed the landowner's son. And then Jesus throws in this punchline. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And the implication to that was clear. He was applying this verse from Psalm 118 to himself, in effect saying, man, the Messiah, the Son of God, stands before you, the one who holds all things together, and you have rejected him. You guys are the builders, Jesus says to these these leaders of the temple. You are the ones who should have known, who should have been the first ones to welcome the Messiah, to welcome the Son of God into your midst. But you, who should have known better, have rejected him. But he is the one who holds all things together. He is the cornerstone. So Peter, when he says this to the very same leaders, Peter and John were very likely there in the temple that day when Jesus said these things. So Peter goes one step further and says, Man, In case you missed it, you're the builders who missed it. You're the builders who rejected the Son of God, the cornerstone who holds all things together. Now, why did these leaders who should have been in the know, the leaders who should have known the most about about the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, the ones that should have been waiting for the Messiah, why did they reject Jesus? One of the reasons could be that Jesus did not fit the mold for what they believed that the Messiah, the Son of God, would be like. They had certain preconceptions about who God was, and Jesus did not fit that mold. There's no way that he could be the Son of God. There's no way that he could be the Messiah. Many times when I, when I talk to people who are not yet followers of Jesus, and when we sit down and have a, a conversation uh, about you know, this, this, this idea of, of who Jesus is, a lot of things I hear is something along the lines of, well, I get that, and maybe there's a God, but if there is a God, I don't think God's like the God of the Bible. I don't think God is like who Jesus was. Jesus is a great guy. It seems like he did really good things, but I don't think that's what God would really be like. And if that's you and if that's in your boat, this is a great place to be to wrestle through those questions. But let me just ask this question to you. If there is a God, if there is an infinite God of the universe, what is the likelihood that the infinite God of the universe will conform to our preconceptions of what God should be like? What are the odds that our three and a half pounds of brain, which God gives us and he expects us to use by all means, but what are the odds that God will conform, that he'll fit in the box that we think he should fit in? Another reason why I think that they uh, rejected Jesus, and I think this is the biggest one, is Jesus threatened their authority and their power in Jerusalem and in the temple. You see, as leaders of the temple, uh, they got quite a bit of respect. They, they had quite a bit of wealth from this. And Jesus, if Jesus is really the Son of God, if he's really the Messiah, then he's Lord of it all and not them. Many times when, when I talk to people who are not yet followers of Jesus, uh, when you kind of, kind of begin to wade through the questions, and this is where I was at one point in time, Many of these objections about who Jesus is boil down to one thing. If Jesus is Lord of the universe, then he's Lord of my life, and that means I don't get to be. Now, I want to say something, but I need to preface it really quick, and this is is what I want to preface it with. In my journey towards Jesus, as I've said, I was a skeptic, and there were many questions that I needed to wrestle through. There are many doubts that I have and honestly that I still have today. There are times where I'm reading scripture and I'm like, God, is this really what it's like? And I need to wrestle through this. I hope that this is a safe place to answer those questions and wrestle through those things. It should be because God gave us these three and a half pounds of brain in order to wrestle through these questions, to seek him and to find him. This should be a safe place. Your small group should be a safe place to ask those questions. We don't expect everybody in our small groups to be followers of Jesus. We expect our small groups to be a a place where somebody can come and learn about Jesus and and ask these questions and wrestle through these doubts. That being said, I've found that many times when when we have objection after objection and question after question and and we can never be satisfied, many times the issues boil down to not an intellectual problem— with this idea of faith, but it boils down to this idea that if Jesus is Lord of the universe, then he's Lord of my life and I don't get to be. And we bristle at this idea that if Jesus is Lord of my life, then, then I have to step off the throne of my life and allow Jesus to occupy that throne, that I need to submit to him. This is the issue that these religious leaders had, because if Jesus is Lord, then they don't get to be the gatekeepers anymore. Now, Peter goes on. Remember verse 12, probably one of the most well-known verses in all of the New Testament, says this: Peter says, "And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved." Now we like that verse, right? I mean that's a, that's a good verse. Like first of all, there's good news, there is salvation. And many times when when we teach kids or maybe we're having a conversation with somebody that doesn't know Jesus, we might go to this and we might say, yeah, listen, there's salvation in no one else. But this verse makes no sense without verse 11. In fact, look at the first word in verse 12, and. See, what Peter was saying was more than just, hey, man, this is is a way that that we can have salvation. He was saying that Jesus is the cornerstone that holds all things together together. To put it the way Paul put it in Colossians 1, that through Jesus all things are held together. Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the center of it all. We're to give him praise and give give him all the glory as the chief cornerstone, as the one who holds all things together. He's the son of God who was sinless on this earth and died as a sacrifice for you and me because he was sinless and rose again from the dead from the power of of God. Jesus is the cornerstone. Without this idea, verse 12 makes no sense. Uh, again, talking about objections to, to, to this idea of faith in Jesus, one of the objections that, that is often brought up is it seems so arbitrary, right? Like, why Jesus? Why not Muhammad? Why not Buddha? Why, why not something else? Why Jesus? And you know what? Without verse 11, it is kind of arbitrary, right? But this isn't just some kind of name that God pulled out of the hat. Jesus is the son of God. He is the cornerstone. And if the Bi- he is who the Bible says he was. If Jesus truly is divine, if he truly holds all things together, then he alone is worthy of our praise. And he alone is able to save. There is salvation in no one else. That verse 11, verse 12 doesn't make any sense. Now, the question becomes, what do we do with this? Is Christ really the cornerstone? Do you acknowledge Christ as the cornerstone? See, this is something I know about all of us, and this isn't like just a spiritual thing. This is a thing thing. The thing that we make most central to our lives is the thing that we are counting on to fulfill, to complete, or to save us. The thing that we make most central to our life is the thing that we are counting on to save, fulfill, or complete us. And so if Christ is the cornerstone, then we know man, that is, that is my only hope. But for many of us, let's just be honest, Christ isn't the cornerstone. He's, he's an end table in our living room. He's something we, we pull out when we have extra guests, and we got to have some place for people to sit and, and put their food, put where they're having to drink. Christ is the cornerstone. He is the center of it all. In him, all things hold together. The question is, do you acknowledge that in your life? Now, I'm not asking, do you go to church a lot? I'm not asking, did you memorize these verses when you were a kid or are you part of a small group? Is Christ the cornerstone of your life? Do you acknowledge that? It's not that we can even make him cornerstone of our life. Because whether we like it or not, whether we know it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not, Christ holds all things together the question is do we acknowledge that in our lives or are you counting on something else to save fulfill or complete you one of the things that that often happens is that we look at jesus and we say man jesus is he's great he taught a lot of really amazing things. He did a lot of amazing. I mean, if we could love like Jesus loved, we'd be a lot better off. So maybe we ought to emulate him a little bit. Or he taught some really incredible things. If we could listen to some of those things, man, if we could love our enemies a little bit more, if we could listen to his teaching and actually a bit, we'd be a lot better off. But the issue is not just is, is Jesus a good person or, or a good model to emulate. It's is he the cornerstone? Because friends, either he is or he isn't. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, um, puts it this way. And by the way, if you've never read Mere Christianity, I highly recommend it. Um, uh, We've got some copies out in the bookstore. Uh, If if, if there's still some out there, I encourage you to pick one up today. But C.S. Lewis puts it this way in Mere Christianity. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg. I love British people, they just have to say the greatest things. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Friends, either Jesus is the cornerstone, or he's not. Either he holds all things together, or he doesn't either he's the son of god who lived a sinless life lived the life that we could never live died the death that you and I deserved so that we could be forgiven and rose again from the dead so that we can be resurrected either that's true or it's not so what do we do with this well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus there is this reality where when we accept Jesus as our savior when we when we fall at his feet and we recognize that we have no hope for forgiveness except through him, God sees us. We stand before God as holy and righteous. Not because we are, not because of anything we did, but because Jesus gifts us his righteousness. And when we stand before God, God sees not what we have done in our own lives. He sees what Jesus did on our behalf. And he says, you're holy and you're righteous. But we also face this reality that we don't always live that out in our lives. Last week Pastor Josh uh, talked about what it means to treasure Christ more, which I understand it, it can be super abstract. Like, well, how do you treasure Christ more? I know how to treasure things more, but how do I treasure Christ more? And what this means for those of us who would call ourselves followers of Jesus is to in a very real way spend some time with God and consider whether Christ truly is do we acknowledge him as the cornerstone or is he just an end table in our living room? In what areas in our life do we not rest on, trust in, treasure Christ above all other things? Where is that gap in reality where honestly we don't treasure Christ above all things, where he isn't the cornerstone of our life? Maybe you put something else as the cornerstone of your life. Maybe you're counting on on the image of a perfect marriage and, and the way people look at you. Maybe, maybe you've put success in some way in Jesus' place and you rest on that and you've made that central to your life. If that's you, and many times that's me in my life, the only response is to repent and say, God, I'm sorry. I acknowledge Jesus as the true cornerstone of my life and I, help me treasure him above all else. If you're not a follower of Jesus, my question to you is just simply this. What do you do with Jesus? To be on the fence and say, well, I think he's a great guy. To, to, to be on the fence and say, well, well, he did a lot of really good things. He taught a lot of really good things. To be on the fence is to not be on the fence at all. It's actually to reject Jesus. You have to do something with Jesus. Either he's the cornerstone or he isn't. We can't just say he's somewhere in the middle, either Jesus is the son of God or he's not. So what do you do with that? Maybe you're ready to take that step and say, God, I don't understand it all. I don't have all my questions answered. I don't understand the implications. I'm scared of the implications. I don't know how to step off the throne of my life. So God, help me do this. I'm ready to follow Jesus. Today, June 10th, is a great day to begin following Jesus, the true cornerstone, the one who holds all things together because there is no other name under heaven given among humanity by which we must be saved. There's no other way not because God works on technicalities, but because the only cornerstone is Jesus. These are only hope, friends. There is no other name. As a community of of followers of Jesus, our prayer, uh, among our leaders and our elders and our pastors and, and our staff, our prayer is that we would be a community that learns how to how to acknowledge that Jesus is the cornerstone, that acknowledges that there is no other treasure we could have besides Christ that is greater. And, and we've been in the midst of, of kind of planning. We plan uh, in, the, in the cycle of kind of a school year where, where we budget and we plan and what's going to come next. And it's so easy to get wrapped up into. You now, what What awesome things are our kids going to do this year? What events are we going to do? How do we get more small group leaders? Because we've got more people who want to be in small groups than we possibly have small groups to put them in. So how do we get more leaders? It's easy to get wrapped up into those details. And this week, the very first thing we considered as a team was how do we become a community of people that treasures Christ above all else? How do we be a community of people that each day wants to treasure Christ more and more because He is the cornerstone? Ask the question. Chances are God has brought something to mind in your life that the Holy Spirit has pressed upon your heart. Some place or something where you are not acknowledging Christ as the cornerstone. What we need to do with that is just simply listen and acknowledge that we are not Lord of our lives, but Jesus is because he is the cornerstone and there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. Let me pray. Gracious God, I I stand before you saying these things and preaching these things and praying these things, but God, you know in my life there are places where there is this gap between what I say and, 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 and where... I don't treasure Christ enough. And so, God, I, I am sorry for that, and I repent of that, and I pray that you would show all of us where in our life we do not acknowledge Christ as Lord, where we do not acknowledge him as the cornerstone. God, I pray that you would help us to be like Peter and John, who say, no matter what you do to us, we we can do nothing but speak of what we have seen God do, what, what we have seen God, do through Jesus in our midst. And for those who have not taken that step to surrender their lives to Christ, God, I pray today you would press upon their hearts that there is no other cornerstone, that even now they would surrender their lives to you, not because of anything they did, but because there is no other hope, there is no other cornerstone, and there is no other name but Jesus. God, thank you. Thank you that we do have the good news that there is salvation, that you did make a way, that you did send your son Jesus to step into humanity, to step into time, to put on human flesh, to live a sinless life and die the death that we deserve so that we could be forgiven and resurrected with Him. God, thank you. Thank you for Christ the cornerstone. It's in his name that we pray. Let all the people say, Amen.